What do you see when you look out of your window? What is the view when you look out of your window? Now, when I lived on the Logos Hope ship, I would look out of our porthole on deck eight, and I'd see concrete skylines, high-rises, supersized cargo vessels, and crowds and crowds of people. And so when we came back to Canada and moved back into the house, uh, I remember that the view of green, cool foliage outside of our bedroom window was like a breath of fresh air. It was such a contrast to the sun-scorched decks of the ship or the heat trapped by the man-made concrete in the industrial uh, commercial, commercial docks where um, we were often berthed. The cool green outside our window in North Gore was exactly what we needed during our time of re-entry into Canadian life. And yet, of course, over time, we got used to the view. Until now, we hardly even notice it. It becomes ordinary, normal, maybe unimpressive. You forget how special it is, how exceptional, how extraordinary. And I think it's kind of like that with our spiritual lives. When we first trust Jesus as our Savior, when we first come into God's family, our, our spiritual eyes are opened. It's, it's like everything has changed and the view has changed and it's just what we needed and we never knew we did. Our understanding of reality, our view changes because now God is real and we now have a spiritual family, we have a purpose and we want to bring others in on the secret that we now know, just like the woman at the well did. But then over time we get used to the view, it's less glorious than it was, it's more ordinary, more commonplace. And yet the view hasn't changed, we have, we've been inoculated against it or maybe we've just stopped looking. So let me ask you again, what do you see when you look out of your window? Now, over these past few weeks, we've looked at Xerxes, right? With this lesson, admit that you're broken and God will make you beautiful. And then we looked at uh, Vashti, uh, do what's right, not what's easy. And then we looked at Mordecai, get serious with sin. And this morning, we're going to look at Haman. Now, let me be up front. There's literally nothing good to say about Haman except for perhaps his organizational skills. So, in a sense, this morning, this, le- this, this morning's message could be considered lessons from Mordecai part two. Uh, because Haman's and Mordecai's lives are so, so intertwined in the book of Esther. But really what we're asking this morning is, how do you live as as a Mordecai in a world of Haman's? How do you live as a Mordecai in a world of Haman's? And what we learn from Mordecai is this, that if you're going to, um, if you're going to carve a legacy um, from, from chaos, then you need to know what hill you are willing to die on. You need to know what hill you're willing to die on. So let's look at Haman. Now, Haman first shows up in Esther chapter 3, and by the end of Esther chapter 7, he's actually dead. So, out of 10 chapters in the whole book of Esther, Haman features in just four of them, and yet the book of Esther wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Haman, right? There would be no story there at all. 
And so what we see in chapter 3 is that Haman is honored and he hatches his plan to, 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 to wipe out the Jews. And then chapter 4, um, actually Haman's not mentioned at all. And then in the second half of chapter 5, Haman re-enters and he creates this impaling pole with Mordecai's name on it. Chapter 6, Haman is then forced to honor Mordecai. And in chapter 7, Haman is executed. That's the Coles Notes version. So let's look a little deeper. Well, in chapter 3, um, Haman, uh, uh, Xerxes honors Haman. Now, as usual, we aren't told why. Um, we're just told that he's given a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. He's the big cheese. Haman's star is, is ascending. And verse 2 of chapter 3 tells us that all the royal officials at the king's gate, which was like an administrative center, so all the royal officials at this administrative center known as the king's gate, knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. This, friends, is Mordecai making a stand, literally making a stand. Now, as with 95% of what goes on in Esther, we aren't told why things happen. We're just told that it happened. Now, it may be that Mordecai resists Haman because Haman was honored when Mordecai should have been honored. After all, Mordecai has literally just foiled a plot to assassinate the king at the end of chapter 2. Or it may be because um, of the ancient rivalry uh, between the Amalekites and the Israelites, which we, we learned about last week. Or some writers say that it's because Haman had an, an idolatrous symbol on his chest, on, the, on, on, on what he wore. And so Mordecai refused to bow down and honor him because it would be considered idol worship. So whatever the reason, uh, in refusing the direct command of the king, it becomes clear that this is the place, this is the moment where Mordecai chooses to make his stand. This is the hill that Mordecai is willing to die on. Now, remember that Xerxes is the king who banished Vashti for refusing his request. And Xerxes is the king uh, who, who historians tell us um, chopped off the heads of construction workers who were working on a bridge simply because uh, a storm stopped the work, as we heard about recently. Um, Xerxes is the king who signs off on the, on the complete eradication of a people group because they don't fit in with Persian society. And so let's be under no illusion uh, about the risk that Mordecai is taking in not bowing to Haman. Okay, Haman's story continues. He looks, he, he, he looks for a way to destroy the Jews and he throws a dice to choose uh, what would be the right or the most, most propitious uh, time or date. And this ends up being the month of, month of Adar. He then manipulates Xerxes, as we know, into signing off on this. And he even offers to pay 750,000 pounds in weight of silver into the treasury of Xerxes to help finance this. Xerxes then gives Haman the ring of power that grants him the authority to act on behalf of the king. And Haman starts the wheels turning on his diabolical plan. Okay, let me ask you a question. 
Does God always get what he wants? Now, we started down this route a couple of weeks ago when he asked the question, is God in control? And so now this week, we ask the sort of follow-up question, does God always get what he wants? Now, Psalm 115 seems to make it pretty clear. It says, it says, our God is in heaven. He does what he pleases, right? That seems to be pretty clear. This seems to indicate that God always gets what he wants. But then just scan down to verse 16 of the same Psalm, Psalm 115, to, and it's there that we find out what it is that God pleases to do. He does what he pleases. What is he pleased to do? Verse 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. And in Haman, we have someone on earth, as it says here, who is willing to do horrendous, atrocious acts by exercising his God-given free will in the sphere that he's allowed. So what's going on here? Now, at the beginning, I asked the question, what do you see when you look out of your window? And now I want us to, as it were, ask what we see when we look at Haman's life. So if you imagine Haman's life is out of that window and you're looking at it, what is it that we see there? Now, with our five senses, you know, sight and smell and taste and hearing and, and touch, we, we, can, we can learn, we can surmise that Haman is an incredibly proud and angry and hateful man who's working to wipe out God's people from the face of the earth. This is a man who's actively working against God. Okay, that's what we see through this window. Maybe we could view that as the, as the downstairs window, as the first floor window. But there's another window that we can look at life through. It's an upstairs window, if you will. And so I want to take you to another verse in the Bible that kind of gives us a bit of a different view of what's going on in the Persian Empire during this, 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 this time in uh, world history. And this verse, I think, will help us answer the question, does God always get what he wants? Okay, so let's turn to, uh, to the book of Daniel, chapter 10, starting at verse 10, okay? Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. Now, these verses also take place in the Persian Empire where where Esther lived, maybe 70 to 100 years earlier. Okay, so it's, but it's, but, but it's in the same world, it's in the same um, era, it's in the same, you know, it's the same kind of worldview and society going on as, as what takes place in the book of Esther. And, and so it's reasonable to assume that the realities pictured in Daniel's time are also operating in Esther's time, right? Same time, same, same place, same part of the world. Now, this scenario that we read in Daniel chapter 10 verse 10 is this, that an angel has been sent to bring Daniel a message. Let's read Daniel chapter 10 verse 10. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, 
You who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling, okay? So this is an important message that the angel's about to bring. Then he continued and, uh, you know, with some words of encouragement, he says, Do not be afraid, uh, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them, which is excellent, right? So it's a, it's a prayer request, and this angel has come in response to this, this prayer request. Let's read on. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Right, so we have an angel. So, so we have uh, one of God's um, faithful servants um, with a prayer request. And he prays and an angel comes to him with an answer to that prayer request. It's like heaven's UPS service, right? But then en route to the address, the angel is resisted and actually detained for 21 days, for three weeks by, 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 by a demon, by, by a malevolent spiritual force known as the prince of the Persian kingdom. Now, this messenger angel is not able to get past this Persian demon prince. So after three weeks, the angel Michael then comes along and enables this, um, this angel. He sort of tag teams with him, and, 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 uh, and they both are able to overcome the demon king of Persia so that this angel can bring the message to God's servant. So... Does God always get what he wants? Because it seems that it was God's wish that this message would reach his servant, Daniel, three weeks earlier. Yet, this is not what happened. So let me ask you again. What do you see when you look out of the window? Yes, we see what's going on with our five physical senses, but there's a parallel reality. There's a hidden reality going on. There's a second floor view. Ephesians 6 verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Friends, this is what is going on outside your window, in our town, in our streets, in our subdivisions, in our homes, in your bedrooms. There is a battle going on involving real evil forces that the Bible tells us can fight against and waylay God's messengers, God's forces. So, does God always get what he wants? Now, to answer that question, we must ask, what is it that God wants? You see, 
If God wants a world right now where evil does not exist, where his rule and reign is never challenged, then it seems that God does not get what he wants. Why is this? Psalm 115 verse 16 again. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. We have rule. We, um, we have um, an authority which, is, which has been given to us from God over this world. And so until this earth is redeemed in its fullness, I have the freedom to live how I want. And it's a sobering thought that there are these spiritual forces at work trying to get me to work at cross purposes with God. And I'm a follower of God. So what's it like for people who aren't following God? How can Satan and his, and his uh, evil forces, how can they influence them, I wonder? You see, each time I choose sin over Jesus, God does not get what he wants. Each time a precious baby is aborted, each time a person is judged because of their skin color or their gender, each time a marriage falls apart, each time someone is enslaved, each time a child gets trafficked, God is not getting what he wants. So what is it that God wants? Ephesians chapter 5 tells us be very careful then how you live not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil therefore here we go therefore do not be foolish but understand what the what the lord's will is you can know what the lord's will is and then we carry on do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you according to, to this passage in Ephesians 5, are you living wise? Are you making the most of every opportunity that God places in front of you to show, um, show those around you how lovely and true God is? Or are you allowing fear to clam your mouth shut? Verse 18, are you self-medicating, whether through alcohol or marijuana or prescription medication or... Uh, or misuse prescription medication, or cottage life, or workaholism? Are you self-medicating, or are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm serious here. Paul makes it clear that, 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 the, that for the follower of Jesus, our default state should be full of the Holy Spirit. This is not just for the weird and the wacky ones or the tongue speakers or the loud worshippers. If you love Jesus, then the command is that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's from this place in verse 19 that genuine worship and community takes place. And this, my friends, is the moment where, where spiritual warfare gets real. This is the moment where Satan sits and takes notice of his church, of God's people. When we recognize that, 
that in this world right here, right now, that God does not get, uh, does not, that God does not always get what he wants. And it's largely because of his followers uh, who were sleeping on the job, um, because we're letting Satan run roughshod over our homes, over our lives, over our society, and over our political system. So what is it that God wants, friends? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. This is what God wants. What is it that God wants? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16 tells us, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So what is it that God wants? 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 tells us, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of truth. Do you read that? God wants everyone, everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So ask yourself this, have all people been saved? Are all people being saved? Will all people be saved? And the answer is no. And this answer should break our hearts because the main reason that more people aren't coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus is because God has given the earth to humankind and his followers, his ambassadors, us, we are not doing our jobs. This isn't God's fault. This is on us. So what is it that God wants? Micah 6 verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. He's already shown you. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What would, what would the world look like if God's followers were acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with their God? So, How can you and I carve a legacy for the glory of Jesus from the chaos of the world around us? Well, Mordecai shows us that it starts with knowing the hill on which we are willing to die. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, No one really knows why they are alive until they know what they die for. No one really knows why they are alive until they know what they would die for. Now this saying, it's not a hill worth dying on, is a saying which, which I've said numerous times. And, the, and, and, and of course it has a military history. And the, and the whole idea is that, is, that, is that taking a hill in battle, which is a strategically advantageous place, so taking that hill um, and holding that hill will cost lives. And that cost must be counted. Uh, and yet somehow in the Christian faith in North American uh, you know, evangelicalism, we've been sold this idea that following Jesus should cost us nothing. We've been sold this, this idea of Jesus, the accessory, or Jesus, the subscription, or Jesus, the wingman. Mordecai knew what he would die for. Though he was surrounded by kneelers, Mordecai stood against the systemic evil that Haman represented. 
And so at risk to his own life, he stood in the gap in between these malevolent forces of evil, this, this prince of the kingdom of Persia that was most likely working through Haman, he stood in the gap between, between these forces and God's people. In Mordecai, because he knew the hill that he was willing to die on, we can safely say in this moment that God did, in fact, get what he wanted. With Mordecai, we could ask, does God get what he wants? Yes, we could say with Mordecai. Now, most likely you will never be called to die for your faith. But that's not not a guarantee. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 verse 10. He says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, will be persecuted. There's isn't it strange how, how Paul went through all of these trials? And, and they're so specific, right? He's got locations and places and times and what, what they look like. And um, he considers Jesus to have rescued him from all of them, even though he went through them all. And then he goes on to say this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is nothing in this verse and there's nothing in all of scripture that says as followers of Jesus that we have the right to live our own private faith that no one knows about and will be left alone. Live and let live. There's none of that in the Bible. The whole of scripture is a call to action. And so not acting, not speaking when the spirit prompts you is giving the permission to the prince of the kingdom of Persia or the prince of the nation of Canada or what, whatever demonic force is around. It's giving that being the right and the permission to carry on unchecked. It's serious. In Luke 14, starting at verse 25, Jesus is being followed by big crowds. This is the first mega church. People are following him. People want to hear what he has to say. He's popular. And in that moment when, when, when uh, people are hanging on his every word, he turns to them and tells them what kind of follower he's looking for. He tells them who can be part of Jesus' club. Luke 14, starting at verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? 
If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. He's just about to plant a mega church, and he doesn't lay out the vision of the church. He doesn't give them a welcome pack. Instead, he simply says, if you don't hate your family, verse 26, if you, if you don't die to yourself, verse 27, if you don't count the cost, verse 28 and onwards, and if you don't give up everything, verse 33, then you cannot be my disciples. And Jesus stops short of explaining his words. He doesn't blunt the impact of his words by explaining them. He just throws them out there and sees if they stick. And right now, I'm sorely tempted to explain what Jesus actually meant by hating your family and dying to yourself and giving up everything. I, I, I want to explain it away so that you don't think that Jesus is a psycho, and by extension, I'm a psycho. But Jesus just lets these words hang there. And so I must as well. In short, Jesus asks each and every one of us, am I the hill that you are willing to die to yourself on? Am I the hill that you are willing to die to yourself on? Friends, Mordecai knew what hill he was willing to die on. He looked at Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the representative of dark spiritual forces, and he said, I will not bow down to you. I know who you are and what you represent. I will remain standing. Here I stand. I can do no other, like Martin Luther said. Friends, it's only by by bowing to Jesus that we receive the supernatural power to stand against the malevolent spiritual forces arrayed against us and our, our world. These forces that are as real as that car driving past your window. It's only through living in the power of the Holy Spirit that God gets what he wants. An army of people who are sanctified, who are praying continually, who are controlling their bodies, who are giving thanks in all circumstances, who are acting justly, loving mercy and walking humbly with their God and who God uses to bring all kinds of people to salvation through knowledge of him. It's only then that God gets what he wants. Jesus died on a hill for you. Jesus knew the hill that he was willing to die on. And life in Jesus and continued life in Jesus starts and continues by knowing the hill that you are willing to die on and then picking up your cross and following Jesus up that hill.